In the first part of our two-episode series on the 1970s, we want to begin by defining an important term. In his book on the convergence of climate change, neoliberalism, and Cold War violence, journalist Christian Perini describes the goal of counterinsurgency. As a doctrine, counterinsurgency, or COIN, is the theory of internal warfare. It is the strategy of suppressing rebellions and revolution. Its object is civilian society as a whole and the social fabric of everyday life. Whereas traditional aerial bombing, which is notoriously ineffective, targets bridges, factories, and command centers, COIN targets the capillary level of social relations. It ruptures and tears, but rarely remakes. The intimate social relations among people, their ability to cooperate, and the lived texture of solidarity. In other words, the bonds that comprise society's sinews. Welcome back to Ending the Myth, the podcast where we put on the vest and stare America in the face. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya, first reform style. <laughs> and today, we are really getting into the meat of why your life, as in uh, you the listener, but not us, you, yeah, sucks. You. <laughs> <laughs> why your life sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yep, that's right. It's the 1970s, baby! And man, this was an important decade. The 1970s represents a major point of transition for the American experience, much like Reconstruction or the New Deal. But instead of offering freedom or relief, the 1970s offered American workers the boot. It's bad, folks. (laughs) More like the end of Reconstruction. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, really, yeah. Gilded Age type stuff. Yeah. But before we get into all that, we should set the table a bit. 1971 proved to be the year that broke the back of the American war against Vietnam. The story of the My Lai Massacre, in which American GIs slaughtered an entire village of Vietnamese civilians in an act of collective punishment, broke in late 1969. The massacre was typical of many such acts carried out by American soldiers as a regular part of the war effort. Reports of these massacres were carried in the foreign press, but American media had always observed a strict censorship of any news that might hurt public opinion of the war. The release of the My Lai Massacre story showed the cracks forming in the imperial armor. By January 1971, the military had found a fall guy for My Lai and were proceeding to trial. Meanwhile, the group Vietnam Veterans Against the War, or VVAW, met at Howard Johnson Motel in Detroit and carried out their own trial. During what they dubbed the Winter Soldier Investigation, Vietnam vet after Vietnam vet gave testimony of the actual nature of the war against Vietnam. Reporting that My Lai was not an isolated incident, soldiers described acts they had witnessed, acts they had performed, rape, torture, petty brutalities, the routine killing of non-combatants, historian Marilyn Young notes in her history of the war. The testimony was shocking, but later investigation would find it was hardly complete in its description of American war crimes in Vietnam. In April, VVAW members made their way to Washington, D.C., where they threw their medals away over a wooden fence that Capitol Police had erected to keep them away from Congress. Nixon responded by having the Supreme Court Justice Warren Burger instate a camping ban against the protesters. He then put the 82nd Airborne on standby and began rounding up troops for the eviction of the protest. 
But there was a problem. The war was unpopular, and the VVAW members were sympathetic. 400 out of 500 military guards refused orders to help with the eviction. Nixon ultimately decided that he had to let the VVAW camp. On May 3rd, 20,000 anti-war demonstrators were again in D.C., this time with the goal of disrupting all business in the capital. Nixon responded with 1,500 guardsmen, more than 5,000 police, and 10,000 federal troops who filled the capital with tear gas. One of the participants in the anti-war rally was a young RAND researcher named Daniel Ellsberg. In June, the New York Times began releasing a series of explosive articles about the hidden history of the Vietnam War, based on an based on internal Defense Department documents that had been leaked to the paper by Ellsberg. Behind the scenes, things were not going much better for the military. In the same month that the first reporting on the Pentagon Papers became public, Marine Colonel Robert Heinel wrote an incendiary article in Armed Forces Journal, where he observed, quote, By every conceivable indicator, our army that now remains in Vietnam is in a state approaching collapse, with individual units avoiding or having refused combat, murdering their officers and non-commissioned officers, drug-ridden and dispirited, where not near mutinous. Heinel goes on to quote an American soldier on the situation, quote, They have set up separate companies for men who refuse to go into the field. If a man is ordered to go to such and such place, he no longer goes through the hassle of refusing. He just packs his shirt and goes to visit some buddies at another base camp. Operations have become incredibly ragtag. Many guys don't even put on their uniforms anymore. The American garrison on the larger bases are virtually disarmed. The lifers have taken our weapons from us and put them under lock and key. There have also been quite a few frag incidents in the battalion. Soldiers refused to go on patrol, and when they did, they engaged in search and evade missions where they avoided all contact with NLF forces. These were so common by 1969 that North Vietnam sent orders to the NLF to only engage American forces that actively tried to engage them. And as historian Derek Seidman notes, quote, Troops also sabotaged military equipment. Gears were jammed on ships, and fires were mysteriously broke out on deck, which prevented embarking to Vietnam. In many cases, soldiers took an even more active role in resisting the war. The Pentagon estimated that there have been 788 fragging incidents between 1969 and 1971. Heinel writes, quote, Word of the death of officers will bring cheers at troop movies or in bivouacs. Bounties ranging from $50 to $1,000 were placed on the heads of officers deemed to be particularly difficult. That same year, there were over 65,000 deserters and draft evasion was so widespread that for the first time in history, the draft board couldn't reach its recruitment target. <laughs> Anywhere from 50,000 to 100,000 people had fled the military, escaping to Canada. Sick. Awesome, man. The military was in revolt. Heinel concluded, quote, All the foregoing facts point to widespread conditions among American forces in Vietnam that have only been exceeded in this century by the French Army's Nivelle Mutinies of 1917 and the collapse of the Tsarist armies in 1916 and 1917. As historian Marilyn Young notes of the situation in 1971, quote, Given the disintegration of the American military in the field, it is clear that Vietnamization was a matter not of choice, but of necessity. The Arvin had better fight their war because the U.S. Army would have difficulty doing it for very much longer. Back in the United States, the open rebellion in the streets during the 1960s had worked to force through positive changes in the conditions of the working class. Throughout this period, there was a moderate leveling effect that pushed up wages and increased worker benefits. Unemployment fell to a record low of 3.8% in 1966, while the average duration of unemployment fell to a record 7.8 weeks in 1969. Between 1966 and 1972, increases in total worker compensation, wages and benefits, rose at a record 6.8% per year with the median family income hitting nearly 79000 in inflation-adjusted dollars. Which, as a note, by the way, higher than it is today. Yeah. <laughs> <I'll just> say, <laughs> that was when it peaked. Yeah. The minimum wage hit its highest level in 1968 at ten fifty-five an hour in inflation-adjusted dollars. 
Richard Nixon became the only president in U.S. history to advocate for either a living wage or universal state-run health care. It might seem surprising that Nixon would advocate such progressive policies, but increases in pay, benefits, and rights were not the product of politicians or political goodwill. They were an attempt by the capitalist class to buy off an increasingly rebellious working class. While urban uprisings spread across the country, so too did a strike wave not seen in the U.S. since the 1930s. In 1965, farm workers in and around Delano, California, launched a strike for union recognition that would drag on for five years and included violent altercations with police, teamsters, and strikebreakers. And as a side note here, I actually met one of the people who was in that strike, and they told me this amazing story about how the police would fly helicopters in the morning over the strike to whip up all the dirt and stuff, uh, you know, to make it like hard for the strikers to pick it outside the fields. And at one point they built a slingshot out of old used tires and <laughs> fired a rock at the police helicopter and it got stuck in the rotor of the helicopter and they crashed it. Like no a mile way. Away. <laughs> yeah. God damn. <laughs> That's badass. <laughs> yeah, fucking whips, right? <laughs> so, workers in Delano were joined by farm workers in Texas Rio Grande Valley in 1966. Teamsters shut down trucking and rail workers shut down the rail lines in 1967. In 1968, teachers in New York City and the entire state of Florida went on strike, breaking laws against public sector workers striking. Five years later, teachers in Chicago, Cleveland, and Detroit all went on strike. In 1968, NFL players went on strike, followed by the first player strike in Major League Baseball history in 1972. But the most concerning strike was the 1970 postal workers' strike. Postal workers started walking off the job in New York City for the right to collectively bargain. By the end of the week, more than 200,000 postal workers across the country, a third of the workforce, had walked off the job. The postal worker strike threatened to grind all business in the country to a halt. It was also part of a disturbing new trend. The strike was a wildcat strike, meaning that it had not been authorized by any formal union structure. Nixon mobilized the National Guard and called in more than 15,000 Navy and Marine reservists to work as scabs in New York City. Quote, what is that issue, Nixon told the country, is the survival of a government based on the rule of law. Ultimately, the federal government reorganized the post office to recognize workers' rights to bargain and gave postal workers a 14% increase in pay to get them to go back to work. This dire situation for American capital led to an increased sense of urgency in the FBI as the 1960s drew to a close. Starting in 1965, the FBI began to escalate from spying and harassment to assassination of political leaders on the left. That year, using informants placed in the leadership of the Nation of Islam, the FBI fermented a dispute between the organization and Malcolm X, who had left the nation one year prior. Ultimately, the nation would assassinate Malcolm in 1965. Earl Grant, a close associate of Malcolm's, who was there at the Audubon Ballroom, would take note of the peculiar behavior of the police after the assassination. Quote, I could hardly believe my eyes. Here were New York City policemen entering a room from which at least a dozen shots had been heard, yet not one of them had his gun out. As a matter of absolute fact, some of them even had their hands in their pockets. The strange or suspicious, one might say, behavior of the police was a common thread in many of these stories. Like when the police detail that the Memphis Police Department had shadowing Martin Luther King Jr. in April of 1968 was mysteriously called off its post one hour before King's assassination. Hmm. Thinking emoji. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. The Department of Justice in 1977, as part of a whole series of hearings about the misdeeds of the security state, looked into the King assassination. They have a whole section on the events that day, and they interview people from the Memphis Police Department. And they're like, why did why were they called back an hour before the assassination? Like, what was the purpose for that? And like not one of them could give an answer. They're just like, oh, I don't remember what was going on that day. Yeah, we just got orders. Uh. <laughs> yeah, who knows why anything happens, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. Um, Interesting. like just getting the Glock out. Yeah. All right. <laughs> In 1966, 
J. Edgar Hoover approved a campaign to be launched against the leadership of the Communist Party in New York called Operation Hoodwink. The goal of the operation was to convince the mafia that the CPUSA was looking to organize workers in mafia-controlled sweatshops in the city. Historians Ward Churchill and Jim Vanderwall note, quote, As the means by which La Cosa Nostra tended to resolve conflicts was rather well known, the desired outcome of the scheme is not mysterious. No mafia hitman took the bait, but not for lack of trying on the part of the FBI. In 1968, the FBI launched a similar campaign to assassinate members of the Los Angeles Black Panther Party by fomenting a war between the Panthers and other black nationalist groups, most notably by the United Slaves and Blackstone Rangers. FBI operatives sent a counterfeit Black Panther letter to the United Slaves outlining a Panther plot to assassinate their leader, Ron Karenga. The FBI similarly distributed leaflets claiming to be from these organizations designed to stoke tension between the groups. This time, the plan worked. In January of 1969, a group of the United Slaves adherents assassinated Panther leaders Alprentis Bunchy Carter and John Huggins on the UCLA campus. That same night, LAPD launched a 100-man SWAT raid on the house of John Huggins' widow, during which an officer put his service pistol to the head of Huggins' six-month-old baby before saying, you're next. In internal memos, the FBI took credit for these, quote, accomplishments, and proposed extending the program. In August, United Slaves member killed San Diego Panthers Sylvester Bell and John Savage. In September, the FBI claimed that three other Panther murders in Newark, New Jersey, had resulted from the program. Yeah, and the SWAT raid on Huggins' widow is interesting because, you know, raids of that size are usually planned, you know, for like weeks in advance. And weird that the very day that Huggins is murdered on campus, they're ready to go. They're like, all right, well, we got (laughs) to... We got to do this. Almost as if uh, they knew. Yeah, right. (laughs) Weird. Again, Mm. thinking emoji here. Hmm. Hmm. FBI operatives launched a similar campaign in Chicago to induce the Blackstone Rangers to assassinate Chicago Panther leader Fred Hampton. When the Rangers did not play ball, the FBI escalated to more direct measures. An FBI informant within the Chicago Panthers, William O'Neill, provided the FBI with a floor plan of Hampton's apartment, including guard positions and where Hampton slept. At 4 a.m. December 4th, 1969, a death squad made up of 14 Chicago police officers broke into Hampton's house and sprayed the small apartment with 100 rounds from their submachine guns. Hampton was comatose in his bed, having already been drugged by O'Neill prior to the raid. Upon finding Hampton, the police officers fired two rounds point-blank into his head. Along with Hampton, leader of the Peoria Panther chapter, Mark Clark, was also assassinated in the raid. O'Neill was praised by his FBI handlers and given a $300 bonus check. Four days later, a 40-man death squad made up of LAPD SWAT team members attempted a raid on the headquarters of the LA Black Panthers with the intent to assassinate LA leader Geromino Pratt. Again, an FBI informant within the L.A. Panthers provided a detailed floor plan for the raid. Pratt, however, was sleeping on his floor that night rather than his bed, causing the would-be assassins to destroy his mattress, but leaving Pratt alive. L.A. Panthers, on heightened alert after the Hampton assassination, fought back, and for three hours, LAPD sprayed this crowded urban neighborhood with over 5,000 rounds of ammunition. As the assault went south for LAPD... SWAT head Daryl Gates even petitioned the Department of Defense for a grenade launcher to use on the building. The petition was approved, but not before media arrived on the scene and secured the Panthers' surrender. The FBI would ultimately stitch up Geromino Pratt on a trumped-up murder charge the next year. Yeah, and I mean, interesting in that LAPD raid, I mean, one, Daryl Gates for, uh, you know, people who are uh, maybe more attuned to police issues— Becomes the head of LAPD, right? (laughs) You know, he's the head of LAPD during the riots in the 90s. Uh, But another interesting thing is a lot of Black Panther members were former soldiers who've been drafted and gone to Vietnam. And part of the reason the LAPD had such a hard time raiding the LA headquarters is 
because the L.A. Black Panthers immediately understood what happened in Chicago as the planned assassination of Panther leaders by police, uh, they assumed that they were probably coming for them next. Right. And so even though they had a floor plan of the building, the L.A. Panthers had actually fortified the building. So they'd filled the walls with sand and like put up sandbags everywhere. They had forced the SWAT team because they knew where the SWAT team was going to come in. Uh, so the door on the back of the headquarters, they had backwalled with sand. So when they came in and tried to bust it down with a fucking battering ram, they couldn't get in because it's just fucking right. know, it's just a like giant like, of hill sand. of sand behind it. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, so it forced them to go through a different entrance that required them to go through a blind alley. And the Panther building was on either side of the alley. Oh, and they cut holes in the wall of the alley. And so the SWAT team hilariously just piled into this alley and the Panthers just pointed their guns down at them, but didn't fire. All right. But essentially had caught them in a trap where they just could have fucking wiped out like half of L.A. SWAT and one fell swoop. Retrospectively, uh, maybe they should have. I don't. Yeah. But um, cooler heads prevailed in L.A. Panthers. But, uh, you know, it was sort of interesting. I mean, again, we talk about the how uh viet you know the lessons of vietnam come home in the form of police oppression but for some of these groups on the left they also learned lessons in vietnam about how to fight a war right uh yeah. they brought back right. with them yeah all right the street warfare and the raid on the la panthers headquarters was another sign of how the american capitalist class was bringing the war home to american cities created by lapd captain daryl gates in 1967 SWAT teams were designed to bring counterinsurgency warfare from the jungles of Vietnam to the streets of America. As such, quote, each SWAT team member receives instruction in the history of guerrilla warfare, scouting and patrolling, camouflage and concealment, combat and built-up areas, chemical agents, first aid, and ambushes, according to an early report. Dressed and armed like military units, the original SWAT officers received their training in counterinsurgency tactics from Marine Corps officers fresh from Vietnam at nearby Camp Pendleton. Later, LAPD added its own special flourishes, like using autopsy pictures of slain policemen in lessons to drive home a feeling of personal danger. Beginning in Los Angeles, SWAT teams quickly proliferated across the country. As the Center for Research on Criminal Justice wrote in 1975, quote, It is not a town's population size, but rather its wealth that determines the need for a SWAT unit. For example, the town of Belvedere has a heavily armed SWAT team. Belvedere, with four officers on the police force, organized a SWAT team made up of citizen volunteers. The SWAT has at its disposal a two and a half ton army surplus tank with a 50 caliber machine gun mount. Belvedere has less than 3,000 people in two square miles but it's the wealthiest city in Marin County in terms of median family income, and its property was assessed at nearly $24 million. Yeah, so when we say, like, standing army, like, that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the police actually were <laughs> and are <laughs> a standing army. Well, and there's an interesting connection to be made. I mean, at the beginning of this episode, we, we talked about, you know, uh, Reconstruction and the New Deal. And there's an interesting connection between the fall of Reconstruction and the, what we're talking about right now, which is the collapse of the New Deal order. And uh, at the fall of Reconstruction, one of the things we talked about in our episodes about that was the creation of the National Guard. Right. Yeah. So the National Guard was created. It was, you know, armories were built in every major American city with the express purpose of putting down labor, you know, uh, and uh, labor strikes and things like that in response to the Great Railroad Strike. And SWAT can be seen in exactly that same context. It is the spread of militarized police units whose sole purpose is the putting down of insurrectionary forces in the United States. Now, notice their training involved learning guerrilla tactics in the history of guerrilla movements, not bank robberies or any of the other bullshit they tell you about why SWAT exists. It was explicitly formed to put down leftist movements within the United States. Right. In 1975, LAPD launched a SWAT raid on a home that they suspected housed members of the Symbionese Liberation Army and potentially Patty Hearst, the heiress that the SLA had kidnapped the previous year. SWAT surrounded the home of the Alameda neighborhood just south of downtown L.A., Over the next two hours, SWAT and LAPD fired more than 9,000 rounds into the house and the surrounding neighborhood, 
They also fired more than 80 tear gas canisters into the tiny house. Tear gas was another weapon that had been developed for use in Vietnam that had made its way to the streets of America. The tear gas canister lit the house on fire, causing a firestorm. Those that tried to flee the burning house were gunned down by SWAT. Gates would later recall the shootout. Quote, Here in the heart of Los Angeles was a war zone, something out of a World War II movie where you're taking the city from the enemy house by house. Ultimately, eight members of SLA were killed in the battle. Gates would later write, One thing was certain. That night, SWAT became a household word throughout the world. They were intrepid. They were brilliant in their deployment. Their execution was flawless. Clearly, SWAT had arrived. As outrageous as the LAPD's raids were, worse still was being carried out in Indian country, far from the prying eyes of the media. The Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota is home to the Oglala Sioux people. It is also one of the poorest places in America. In February of 1973, members of the Oglala Sioux joined with members of the American Indian Movement, or AIM, in the tiny hamlet of Wounded Knee, to plan a protest against the activities of the tribal president, Dick Wilson. Wilson was a small-time criminal who had previously embezzled funds from the tribe. He was also a favorite of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the FBI who oversaw the reservation. This is likely because Wilson oversaw the leasing of federal land to private business interests. Wilson had even been given a $62,000 BIA grant for the creation of a tribal ranger force, which he called the Guardians of Oglala Nation, or Goon Squad. Oh, by the way, like with um the Simeonese army, like was it assumed that Patty Hearst was like in the building at the time of their raid? Yeah, which but leads like, to one of what? the all-time funniest uh like quotes you get from this era. So the house, uh, the people who live in the house was like a black family, and uh, they essentially just like took over the house and were kind of holding these people hostage, right? Uh, the family, you know, when the when the fire started or right before the fire started, the family had been allowed to leave the house. And so there's a young woman who's probably like in her early 20s, uh, and she's getting asked by the news, this is on video, if Patty Hearst was in the house and she tells them she doesn't know and then says all you or says uh, all white people look alike to me <laughs> <laughs> maybe one of the funniest things to come out of the, the pretty horrifying situation but yeah it was assumed she was in the house or that at least there was a probability uh, which is interesting too because it shows the kind of how LA police can, or how police can do, you know, uh, divert themselves from the interests sometimes of the ruling class where uh, the Hearst family certainly did not want their daughter burned to death alive. Uh, wasn't going to stop Daryl Gates from at least trying it. Yeah. But since the house like caught on fire and everyone else like that escaped got shot up, like I thought that how did she not die? Oh, she wasn't in the house. They just thought she was. Oh, they just thought, oh, okay, got yeah, it, got she it. She was okay. actually up in San Francisco in a safe house, on the, like in the uh, outskirts of San Francisco, I think. Yeah, okay, right. okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think the leader of it, too, is this guy named Sink. I don't think he was in the house either at the time. But right, okay. Maybe he was, got I it. can't remember. Sink does die, but I can't remember where. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes more sense. Cool. Yeah. Massive government siege made up of goons, U.S. Marshals, local sheriff departments, and the FBI trapped the caravan at Wounded Knee, blocking all the roads in and out of the hamlet. Colonel Volney Warner of the 82nd Airborne and Colonel Jack Potter of the 6th Army were sent by the Pentagon to advise government forces on the ground. It was a sign that this was to be a military siege, as Ward Churchill and Jim Vanderwall note. Documents later subpoenaed from the Pentagon revealed that Colonel Potter directed the employment of 17 APCs, which is Armored Personnel Carriers, 130,000 rounds of M16 ammunition, 41,000 rounds of M40 high explosive, as well as helicopters, F4 Phantom jets, and personnel. Military officers, supply sergeants, maintenance technicians, chemical officers, and medical teams remained on duty throughout the 71-day siege, all working in civilian clothes to conceal their unconstitutional involvement in this civil disorder. 
AIM proposed a mutual withdrawal, but the federal government rejected it. Dick Wilson gave away their motivation in rejecting any offer to de-escalate the situation when he proclaimed to gathering reporters, quote, AIM will die at wounded knee. On the night of March 9th, federal forces poured thousands of rounds into the small hamlet from their defensive positions. In response, the besieged residents declared themselves the independent Oglala Nation, separate from the government headed by Dick Wilson. Concerned that the initial show of force had not deterred the residents, the FBI brought in Special Agent Richard Helm, who has overseen the cover-up of the Fred Hampton assassination in Chicago, to take control of the operation. He countermanded the U.S. Marshals and ordered all law enforcement to use shoot-to-kill orders on the siege line. On March 13th, federal forces began firing into the hamlet with 50 caliber machine guns, which could easily punch through the walls of the shack housing. Over the next few weeks, the feds fired thousands of rounds into the hamlet. During this period of fighting, a goon squad member shot a U.S. Marshal in the back, paralyzing him. Giving this pretext, the FBI announced that all besieged inhabitants would face federal indictments when the siege ended. Again, in April, AIM tried to negotiate a ceasefire to end the siege. Federal forces responded with more than 4,000 rounds fired into the hamlet. On April 27th, federal forces launched their most aggressive assault of the siege, firing tear gas into the encampment, and then following that up with more than 20,000 rounds fired into Wounded Knee. A surrender was finally reached on May 7th. Two A members were dead, 14 were seriously wounded, and 8 to 12 A members had dispro- and 8 to 12 A members had been disappeared by goon squads, most likely murdered and buried somewhere on the vast reservation. Over the next 3 years, more than 60 A members would similarly be disappeared by government forces in and around the Pine Ridge Reservation. Academics Bruce Johansson and Roberto Mastis helped to put the violence around Pine Ridge in perspective. Quote, Using only these documented political deaths, the yearly murder rate on Pine Ridge Reservation between March 1st, 1973 and March 1st, 1976 was 170 per 100,000. By comparison, Detroit, the reputed, mor- the reputed murder capital of the United States, had a rate of 20.2 in 1974. The U.S. average was 9.7 per 100,000. Based on Chile's population of 10 million, the estimated 50,000 persons killed in three years of political repression in Chile at the same time, 1973-1976, roughly paralleled the murder rate at Pine Ridge. My God. Police created a velvet glove of community policing to pair with the iron fist of SWAT and COINTELPRO. Contrary to popular belief today, community policing was not developed as an alternative to the increasingly militarized police tactics embodied by SWAT, but as a complement to those tactics, forming a grander strategy of counterinsurgency. Community policing, anti-police activist Christian Williams writes, helps legitimize police efforts by presenting cops as problem solvers. By developing connections between police and community leaders and normalizing police presence in the neighborhood, Community policing provides a direct supply of low-level intelligence. These are not incidental features of community policing. These speak to the real purpose. Once again, Los Angeles proved to be the testing ground for the effectiveness of community policing programs. Most notable of these was the effort to police police officers in schools in what was called school resource officer or SRO programs. In 1968, Protests over segregation, lack of funding, and racially motivated discipline in the schools rocked Los Angeles, culminating in a massive student walkout in March that involved nine high schools, two junior highs, and thousands of students. In Pasadena, a group calling itself the Citizens Committee on Respect for Law, Self-Discipline, and Morality (laughs) (laughs) began the 1968 school year demanding that Pasadena adopt a school resource officer program for its middle schools, stating, quote, The purpose is to develop a closer rapport between students and law enforcement officers and to create a greater respect for law and order. Glendale and Pomona quickly followed with their own SRO programs designed to, quote, help students develop an understanding of society based on law and order. Glendale school principal Arden Daniels assured parents that the police presence was purely educational and that 
In no way does he, the SRO, participate as a disciplinarian, a responsibility of the principal and other administrators. The friendly school police officer was there to counter troublesome civil rights activists and anti-war advocates who parents and administrators felt had convinced students that the coercive power of the state was something to be feared. The SRO was intended to be the officer friendly to SWAT's maniac cop. Great 80s horror series, by the way. (laughs) Racial anxiety was always just under the surface with these programs. In Pasadena, concerns about respect for law and morality only cropped up after the NAACP challenged the racial segregation of Pasadena schools, petitioning the court for a supervised process of integration. Monrovia Mayor Richard Mountjoy decided that police were needed in schools to, quote, create a favorable environmental climate in which to teach a greater respect for law and order and understanding of law enforcement only after clashes over racial integration rocked the school in 1972. SRO programs spread like wildfire across the country. Today, the vast majority of schools, including elementary schools, participate in this program that transfers money out of the school system and into the local police departments. And while the role of police in schools has expanded to judge, jury, and, at least in one case, executioner, their function has remained largely the same. Sociologists Aaron Kupchak and Torin Monahan described the effect of SRO programs in a 2006 paper, quote, Police interact with students on a daily basis, cultivate informants, spread an ambiance of control, and streamline the formal disciplinary process to efficiently usher students into the criminal justice system. The intellectual groundwork for this massive counterinsurgency campaign was led by America's most prestigious colleges, whose faculty launched a propaganda offensive designed to demonize the poorest members of the American working class. In 1968, Edward Banfield, a political scientist (laughs) from the the University of Chicago, also (laughs) released his wildly influential book, The Unheavenly City. In it, Banfield takes Moynihan's theory about the pathological black family and extends it to the entire urban working class. In his taxonomy of the American class structure, Banfield describes the upper class individual as markedly self-respecting, self-confident, and self-sufficient. The most future-oriented of all individuals, he is capable of showing concern for the future of such abstract entities as the community nation or mankind. By contrast, Banfield describes the lower class individual as present-oriented, living moment to moment. Impulse governs his behavior, either because he cannot discipline himself to sacrifice a present for a future satisfaction, or because he has no sense of the future. His bodily needs, especially for sex, and his taste for action, take precedence over everything else, and certainly over any work routine. (laughs) Well, it's amazing how these uh, sort of excuses for poverty never change, right? Yeah. Given the immutable deficiencies of the lower class, Banfield argued that the New Deal and Great Society social programs were at best foolhardy and at worst reinforcing lower class pathologies. Quote, lower class poverty has as its proximate cause ways of thinking and behaving that are in the adult, if not the elements built into the personality at least more or less deeply ingrained habits. In large degree, it is inwardly caused, and improvements in external circumstances are likely to affect it gradually, if at all. In principle, it is possible to eliminate poverty of such a family, but only at great expense, since the capacity of the radically improvident to waste money is almost unlimited. Raising such a family's income would not necessarily improve its way of life, moreover and could conceivably even make things worse. Very convenient for rich people, mm, I gotta say. Yeah. <laughs> Guess we don't gotta give them money. Yeah. Banfield's book shaped the debate around the urban crisis of the late 1960s, and the message was clear. The time for social uplift was over. Now is the time for punishment. Richard Nixon ran his 1968 campaign on a tough-on-crime platform and promised to stop coddling the urban poor, universally understood to be the black working class, and bring down the police hammer on their heads. 
While the clearly racist character of Moynihan and Banfield's work was well understood by the left at the time, the authors were given the cover of their academic language by the media. Still, others wanted and did go further. In 1969, Arthur Jensen, an educational psychiatrist who taught at UC Berkeley, published his article, How Much Can We Boost IQ and Scholastic Achievement, in the Harvard Educational Review. The article argued there were racially defined natural limits to intelligence, with, and you will surely be surprised to hear this, white people being the most intelligent and black people being the least intelligent. Very convenient again. (laughs) It turns out our highly stratified society that benefits me is actually natural. Yeah. Wow. It's just science, folks. Science is real. (laughs) What are you, anti-science? Yeah, right? <laughs> I fucking love science. We'll just yeah. put that on right there. <laughs> yeah, the Facebook uh, post is uh, is going off on that group. If Facebook existed in 1969, they would be posting this article and yeah, being I like... Yeah, I fucking love science. We'll be posting this article like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> Jensen, a regular contributor to German neo-Nazi journal New Anthropology had been specifically solicited by the Harvard Journal to write an article on the racial differences in intelligence, something the editors initially denied until Jensen embarrassed them by releasing the correspondence. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. America's oldest and most important university putting its stamp of approval on neo-Nazi race research conducted by a charlatan being housed, paid, and protected by America's preeminent public university, threw academia into turmoil, and a battle raged at colleges over the future of the sciences. With the American intelligentsia having turned its back on the reformative politics of the New Deal in order to return to the punitive politics of racial and class hierarchy of the early 20th century, police were going to need new powers to carry out this more aggressive agenda. Richard Nixon instantly recognized the value of an anti-drug campaign in peeling back the rights of suspects and giving police increased access to poor communities. Nixon was aided by Lyndon Johnson's decision to move drug enforcement out of the Department of Treasury and the Food and Drug Administration and consolidate it under the Justice Department, officially making drugs a law enforcement question. Nixon, hot to find a war that he could campaign on, declared that he would launch a war on drugs. During the 1970 legislative season, the Nixon administration flooded Congress with crime bills that sought to reverse the Miranda decision and greatly expand police rights to search and seizure. Perhaps most consequential, as far as body count goes, was the legalization of no-knock warrants with the passage of the 1970 crime bill. Every step of the way, the peeling back of individual rights was justified through the invocation of the drug menace the curse of the unredeemable and monstrous lower class at the heart of the urban crisis. Nixon advisor and father of the no-knock raid, Dan Santarelli, would later reflect on the effect that the drug war had on policing and the public. Quote, When you speak to a police officer today, you're terrified that you're going to offend him and that he's going to arrest you and take you off to jail. Sure, a judge will let you out and drop the charges in a few days. But you spent those days in jail. And now you have an arrest record. There's just no accountability for excessive force. If politicians can get away with calling it a war on crime or a war on drugs, then they will. And yes, that's going to make law enforcement more willing to push the envelope when it comes to the use of force. The irony of Nixon's drug war was that the war in Vietnam was largely what was fueling the drug trade in the United States. CIA involvement in the drug trade dated back to the agency's creation in 1947. In one of the CIA's first clandestine missions in Europe, the agency drove a wedge between communists and socialists in Marseille, France, in order to break the communist political power in the region. For this task, the CIA turned to the Corsican criminal underworld, a natural choice given that Corsican syndicates had aided French fascists in the 1930s and collaborated with the Nazis during the war. The Corsican syndicates broke up labor strikes and attacked communist rallies for the agency. In order to fund the operation, the CIA put the Corsican gangsters in touch with the Sicilian Mafia, another group that collaborated with the Nazis during the war, who had connections with poppy growers in Turkey. 
The Turkish growers were in turn connected to organized crime elements that had aided the fascists in Greece. Very quickly, a network was formed. Opium poppy was growing in Turkey and converted into morphine on the Turkey-Lebanon border. From there, it was shipped to Marseille, where it was refined into number four heroin, meaning 80 to 90% purity. After refining in Marseille, it was distributed by the Sicilian Mafia in Europe and the United States. Incidentally, Charles Lucky Luciano, who headed the distribution of heroin in the United States, had worked off the books for the American War Department during the war, breaking up communist unions on the New York City docks. The money from the drug trade then financed the criminal organizations that worked as the stormtroopers for the CIA's clandestine anti-communist operations in Europe. It's weird. I'm starting to see a, a theme with all mm. these characters. <laughs> During the 1950s, panic over the victory of the Chinese communists and increased access to Southeast Asia provided by increasing U.S. involvement in Vietnam led to the CIA and French intelligence launching espionage and sabotage operations along China's southern border. For these operations, the CIA used Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang, or KMT, army. But a clandestine operation of this scale would need access to quick, untraceable cash. The CIA and French intelligence services worked with colonial collaborators in Laos and Burma to start converting the rice fields into poppy fields. The poppy was then moved using Korshin charter planes to Hong Kong, where it was refined into number four heroin before being sent to various Asian states for dilution and distribution. As American involvement in Southeast Asia intensified, the CIA became embroiled in the Laotian Civil War. During the early 1960s, the CIA formed a 30,000-man private army of Hmong people, an ethnic minority in Laos, to fight the communist forces in the Civil War. This army needed access to untraceable cash, so the CIA intensified its operation in the heroin trade. <laughs> Very cool. God. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ. Laotian General Vang Pao brought Chinese chemists from Hong Kong to Laos and constructed a massive heroin refining facility in Vientiane. The heroin was then moved by a CIA front under the name Air America, that operated out of Long Tiang, a Laotian military base used as a base of the CIA operations in the region. This region of heroin production became known as the Golden Triangle. Producing heroin at the volume that the CIA was producing it required a massive customer base with disposable income, something that could not be found in most Asian cities at the time. Luckily, starting in 1964, the United States troop commitment in Vietnam began to escalate quickly until there were over half a million U.S. troops in the country by 1968, all with disposable income. U.S. soldiers became the primary customer base for the Golden Triangle, frequently consuming uncut number four heroin straight. Heroin use was extremely common among American soldiers in Vietnam. A U.S. Army survey administered in 1971 indicated that 22% of soldiers had tried heroin at least once. A White House task force, however, estimated that number to be as high as 34%. The scale of the addiction crisis in Vietnam was enormous, and it was being exported back to the United States. Historian Alfred McCoy notes that, quote, Despite President Nixon's promise that all our servicemen must be accorded the right to rehabilitation, the U.S. military command in Vietnam was discharging between 1,000 and 2,000 GI addicts a month. These soldiers, who had failed two year analysis tests, were discharged immediately without access to rehab. Thus, returning American soldiers became the primary vector of heroin use in the United States. As the war in Southeast Asia drew down and the drug war ramped up, the CIA made some initial gestures at ending its involvement, always officially denied. In the drug trade. As Alpha McCoy notes, quote, In 1972, for example, the CIA paid the nationalist Chinese irregulars in northern Thailand nearly $2 million to burn their last 26 tons of opium, a sham media spectacle staged to erase the agency's long alliance with Asia's leading drug lords. The real twilight of the heroin trade came with the fall of Saigon in 1975. Again, Alfred McCoy. On April 30, 1975, 
North Vietnam's army broke through Arvin's last defense and captured a city of 4 million people, including 300,000 unemployed, 150,000 heroin addicts, and 130,000 prostitutes. Within months, the new regime had established a new youth college, a residential drug center with 1,200 beds and a treatment program combining acupuncture, martial arts training, and indoctrination. Hell yeah. Those are the yeah. three that's the three uh like legs of any good treatment program. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I point out, unlike our treatment programs, this apparently works. So it yeah. is actually the three legs of any good treatment program. <laughs> Addicts were absorbed into a culture of neocolonialism, explained the director <laughs> Fan Wim Bin in a 1981 interview. So we have to educate them with socialist culture. Hell yeah. By 1981, the year-long program established an 80% cure rate among the 8,000 addicts treated at the time. Once the gateway to the world market for Laotian heroin laboratories, Saigon had become a dead end in Southeast Asia's drug traffic. By the mid-1970s, the CIA was out of the drug trade. But not for long. Yeah, watch the space. <laughs> yeah, for real. What a wild ass story, man. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah. That McCoy book about the politics of heroin is uh, eyebrow raising. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, Alfred McCoy, uh, who's you know a, a very well respected uh, historian, after he wrote this book, which I think he wrote it initially in the 1980s, was his first publication came. Uh, they were having some problems in his building, in the history building, with uh, the phone lines. And so they called in somebody from the phone company to try and figure out what was going on. Like, phone calls were just cut off and stuff like mm. that. And in finding out what's going on, the uh, guy from the phone company noticed something very interesting in the box when he opened it up. Some devices had been applied to Yikes. the phone lines, particularly to Alfred McCoy's office. Yikes. Uh, he essentially found... FBI, CIA, who knows, uh, bugs that have been installed and were basically shorting the phone lines because they installed them poorly. We're shorting the phone yeah. lines in the building. But yeah, the U.S. defeat in Vietnam signaled first by the 1973 Paris Peace Accords and then cemented by the fall of Saigon in 1975 was a national humiliation for the American capitalist class. Vietnam had publicly demonstrated that the most powerful empire the world had ever seen could not, in fact, simply impose its will on others. Yet, humiliation aside, the clandestine services of the United States were still hard at work trying to reshape the world in their own image in the 1970s. The CIA had backed a military coup in Greece in 1967. When the Council of Europe threatened to throw Greece off the council in 1970 over allegations of widespread torture, murder, and human rights abuses, the U.S. again intervened on Greece's behalf, applying diplomatic pressure on the council. Greece wound up walking away from the organization anyway. <laughs> Still, the Cannes speech inspector Basil Lambro. Athens' most infamous torturer used to give his victims summed up the American relationship. Quote, You make yourself ridiculous by thinking you can do anything. The world is divided in two. There are the communists on the side, and on this side, the free world. The Russians and Americans, no one else. What are we? Americans. Behind me is the government. Behind the government is NATO. Behind NATO is the U.S. You can't fight us. We are Americans. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes your uh, vassals accidentally say the truth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in 1973, the CIA launched a military coup in Chile that overthrew the elected government of Salvador Allende. The military junta, headed by General Augusto Pinochet, a Chilean officer who had received training at the U.S.'s School of the Americas in Panama, immediately set about murdering communists, union leaders, and other suspected left elements in the country. Considered a great victory for freedom in the United States, the U.S. flooded Chile with aid, advisors, and corporate investment. That same year, the Australian Labour Party was voted into power for the first time in a quarter of a century under the new Prime Minister, Edward Whitlam. Australia was one of the only countries not directly occupied by the U.S. military that had supported the U.S. in the Vietnam War. 
Whitlam immediately ended the Australian draft and gave amnesty to all draft resistors, effectively ending Australian involvement in the war. Even more crucially, Whitlam gave open support to the Australian labor movement, including dock workers who had begun a boycott of American shipping to protest the war. Though it should be noted that Whitlam did not support the boycott. The Nixon administration referred to the Australian Labor Party as, quote, maniacs and mass murderers in White House recordings. The CIA immediately began dumping money into the coffers of conservative Australian politicians, urging them to explore all options to get rid of Whitlam. In 1975, conservatives won a majority in the Australian Senate. They immediately set about with their orders from Washington. They refused to approve the federal budget and demanded that Parliament be dissolved and new elections held. While technically the Senate could refuse a budget, it had never happened in Australia's 75 years as a democracy, and no one expected it to come at the demand that the state be dissolved. Whitlam refused to dissolve Parliament and vowed to move on without a budget. With Whitlam not cooperating, the Australian Governor-General John Kerr moved to step in. The Governor-General is the representative of the British royal family in Australia. Generally considered a ceremonial position, Kerr decided to seize it by the reins. Under the power of Queen Elizabeth, Kerr dismissed Whitlam from Prime Minister and toppled the government. It was a parliamentary coup launched from Washington against one of its own staunchest allies. The Melbourne Age would write of Kerr's coup, quote, By bringing down the government because the Senate refused its supply, which is the goofy term that Australians use for their budget, (laughs) Sir John Kerr acted at least against the spirit of the Australian Constitution. Since 1901, it has been a firmly held convention that the Senate should not reject budgets. Sir John has created an awesome precedent that a hostile Senate can bring down a government whenever it denies supply. Kerr breathed life into a constitutional relic, the right of kings and queens to unilaterally appoint governments. The same year as the CIA's great victory over Australian democracy, another CIA drama was playing itself out in the Middle East. In 1972, the newly ascendant Ba'athist Party of Iraq signed a pact of friendship and cooperation with the Soviet Union. Iran. Fearing its neighbor of the South, approached the Nixon administration and asked if the U.S. would back a plan to arm separatist Kurdish rebels in the northern regions of Iraq. Within a year, the CIA had shipped $16 million in small arms and ammunition to the Kurdish rebels. Still, the duplicity on the part of the Shah and the CIA was evident in a 1974 CIA memo stating, quote, We would think that Iran would not look with favor on the establishment of a formalized autonomous government. Iran, like ourselves, has seen benefit in a stalemate situation in which Iraq is intrinsically weakened by the Kurds' refusal to relinquish their semi-autonomy. Neither Iran nor ourselves wish to see this matter resolved one way or another. The next year, having served their purpose, the Kurds were hung out to dry. Iraq launched a massive repression campaign against the Kurds, executing hundreds of Kurdish leaders and killing an unknown number of Kurdish people. (laughs) A theme, by the way, that we're going to see in American history in the region. (laughs) Yeah. 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 200,000 Kurds managed to flee into Iran, but they were not met with welcome arms. The Shah refused the refugees' humanitarian assistance and forcibly deported 40,000 of them back to Iraq. The United States did not accept a single Kurdish refugee into the country. American intervention was more overt in the case of Indonesia. When the American ally launched an invasion of East Timor, a small nation of one and a half million people, it quickly became bogged down in the island's mountainous terrain, defended by a fierce native resistance. The U.S. swooped in in 1977 with large transfers of high-tech military equipment and other aid, both overt and covert, that allowed the Indonesian military to take the island. Victory in East Timor was followed by a massive bloodletting as the Indonesian military, many of whom were veterans of the genocidal coup in 1965, began rounding up the Timorese and concentrating them in camps, where many faced forced starvation. Those who were suspected of being guerrillas were summarily executed. The Indonesian occupation of East Timor would last until 1999, when the U.S. finally withdrew its support. 
The worst of the Indonesian atrocities in East Timor tracked exactly with the height of USAID. We have another episode in an interview where we explore other facets of the rollback of the 1970s. And I think we want to save our discussion until after those episodes so we can talk about this important period as a whole. For those on our Discord, if you have any questions about what historians like to call the 1970s turn, feel free to post them in the Ending the Myth channel on the Discord, and we will do our best to answer them in our discussion. For everyone else, DM us on Twitter. But for now, we want to leave you with some thoughts on the economic side of the rollback of the 1970s. In her 2016 book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, academic and activist Kianga Yamada Taylor describes the mood among the American capitalist class in the critical decade of the 1970s. When a New York Times journalist and graduate student were allowed to sit in on a series of retreats for business executives in 1974 and 1975, they found a mood of vulnerability and concern about the long-range implications of recent social and economic policies. In their book, Ethics and Profits, The Crisis of Confidence in American Business, Leonard Silk and David Vogel conducted a wide-ranging survey of 360 anonymous executives from some of the most powerful corporations in the nation about their attitudes concerning the health of business and free enterprise. They found a range of emotions— from anxiety to contempt, directed at the great mass of American society. One executive suggested, the American capitalist system is confronting its darkest hour. If we don't take action now, we will see our own demise. We will evolve into another social democracy. Another bemoaned the role of Congress and stressed that businesses had to lead the country. Quote, it is up to us not some prostitute of a congressman pandering to get reelected to decide what should be done. They debated whether or not American democracy had gone too far, asking, quote, can we still afford one man, one vote? One man, one vote has undermined the power of business in all capitalist countries since World War II. Some discussed how to jolt the public out of its dependence on social welfare spending. Quote, the recession will bring about the healthy respect for economic values that the Depression did. It would be better if the recession were allowed to weaken more than it will, so that we can have a sense of sobriety. We need a sharp recession. Interesting. Some things never change, right? Mm hmm <laughs>
dice que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de gente de Stay.